Hi, this is Robin Hooper, and this is What an Office, the podcast. I went on about my mother. I went on about my cats. I went on about liking cake. I mean, anything that was just very, very mundane. Most of us were sitting in a room about this size, really bored with biscuits and going crazy. He came out, we were all sitting there. He says, what's the matter with you? You all look, you all look terrified. And of course we were terrified. Because we're all like rabbits in the headlights. It is a question of trust. Do you trust me? Yes, I trust you. Hi. And welcome to episode two of What's an Office, the podcast. This time we're hearing from Robin Hooper, who played Malcolm. You might remember his character as the oldest of the Wernham Hogg staff, who was the only one brave enough to challenge David Brent on upcoming redundancies in the first series. Here he talks about his audition, what it was like working with Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, Martin Freeman and Mackenzie Crook, and the real reason that he wasn't in series two. Once again, you join us in an East London coffee shop. Robin, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Um, what a lovely spot for us to chat. I hope that you like where we are. Well, I live here. I live around. I mean, I don't live in Starbucks, but I mean, I live in the area. <laughs> so it's like a five minute walk away. So um, before we get into the office. Yeah. Why did you become uh, an actor? Why? I was hopeless at everything else just hopeless at sport. Um, I wasn't very academic, although I became more academic because eventually I went to Manchester University in my 20s, but that was largely because um, I couldn't really get into acting school. Um, So I went to university. But really, uh, uh, acting at school, basically, was just it. That's all I could do. And read the lesson, you know, the Bible. Well, they don't do it anymore now. But, you know, a, a grammar school in the West Midlands, and we're talking the 60s, you know, you read the lesson uh, when you were in the fifth and sixth form, and none of the other lads wanted to do it, and I didn't mind doing it at all. And I, I, I imagine I must have been incredibly embarrassing doing it, but I used to love it, and I used to love the school play. So how did you go from the black country um, to becoming an actor and navigating your way into the, into the trade? Um, just... Um, I was very lucky, I think most people say that, but I worked hard and you know the first job I did was in a theatre and education in Watford and I worked for 40 weeks solid and I got an equity card and once I got that I really got going. I was also prepared to do almost anything and go anywhere and that's that's what it's been like until quite recently. I've always been happy about touring, about doing difficult pieces new pieces all over the country and it's only recently well comparatively recently in the last 25 years say that i've started to get more into television you know so what was your first um tv or film gig that you had then do you remember um to be honest yes i do i more or less do know what it was and it was crown court a thing that used to be shown on television in the afternoons. I'm so happy that you said that because it actually came up in my research. All right, oh, good. For those who don't know, Crown Court ran for 12 years uh, on ITV and they made, can you guess how many episodes they made of Crown Court? They made hundreds. 
879. Yeah, and I was in one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it also featured Bill Nye, Jim Broadbent, uh, Brian Cox, um, Connie Booth, and, and basically a who's who of British talent, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, you all, if you got a Crown Court, you did it, because you went up to Manchester, and Manchester, that's where I was at university, and Manchester was always a fun city, so you had a good time. Um, and I did one, and then strangely enough, about two years ago, I did another one. Is that in your research? Yes. Oh, wow. Because um, uh, the, most, the most interesting thing about that was is um, the, the, the team who did the more recent one, and I don't think it's taken off as a new thing at all. This is the Judge, judge Rinder yeah. that yeah. you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, again, a Manchester group, and they were huge fans of the original series. Anyway, I, I auditioned, and it was a completely different part. And what they did was they tracked down the episode that I did in 76. That's right. <laughs> and um, it was really nice because um, they gave me that, and then I, they gave me a copy of the one that was made about two years ago. And the... The surprising thing was, although perhaps it wasn't surprising, I was paid more in the 70s for what I was paid two years ago to do the work. Wow. More money, yeah. Why, that is, w- why is that? Because the state of state of play now. Mm. You know, I mean, then there was more money around. It was Granada. Um, and I don't know. It was I got more money then. The, the equivalent of more money. But um, that brings us to the office. Uh, how did you come to be in the office? Um, my agent rang me up and said, look, uh, they're making this new series. It's improvised. Uh, there's loads of other office series, office series being made at the same time, which, of course, people have forgotten about completely because the, the, the office was one of three series that was kind of coming out at that time about offices. Um, did they? Did the other two come out? Or? Yeah, one with Pauline Quirk, uh, and then there was a third one as well. But I don't know what it was. All disappeared without trace. Uh, but anyway, um, and he said, "Look, there won't be much in it." And he said, "Do you know Ricky Gervais?" He said, "No." "Do you know Asha Tala?" "No." And I said, "Look, I'll go along because it's television, and I haven't done that much television really." So I went along, and they saw me twice, and I improvised with Ricky. And the person I really respected at the interview was Stephen Merchant and Asha Tala. Uh, I thought they were great guys. And Rich and Ricky was kind of a little bit distant. And he wasn't... He'd be the first to admit it then. He wasn't really an actor. He was, yeah. a, he was a stand-up comic, you know, and still is a brilliant stand-up. But, but then, I think getting this old old actor in who was not got many theatre credits kind of working with improvising with it, was, it, it didn't exactly go smoothly but they got me in I think partly because I went in to the interview more or less in character right. because I thought if I don't do that then because it's going to be fly on the wall and all that and remember it's comparatively early days of that because I'm more flamboyant and more of a theatre actor then I thought I've got to really keep it down. So I went in rather dual and a bit sort of Malcolm-like. And I, I think that's why I got it. So was that how you interpreted the role as very much kind of um, a, a disciplined, down-to-earth, slightly moody guy? Is that what you were trying to get across? 
Was that in the script originally, or was that something that you've you put into it? I don't know. I mean, I thought I've just got to keep it down. I've just got to be all as ordinary as possible. And I, I mean, not young, even though it was what twenty years ago. I mean, then I was fifty, so I was the. I think I was the oldest guy there. So to a certain extent, I kind of if you like, a natural authority, but then somebody who was redundant. I mean, you know, just... just the, the Brent could actually humiliate. Um, but, yeah, I think, I, I think it was all about trying to be rather tight and not particularly, not particularly interesting. Not particularly interesting. Which is strange for a, for an actor just to be. It was very difficult, ordinary. and very very difficult to do if you you'd only got one line or half a line. And I mean, this is one of the things that I remember clearly is that there were people like Ricky and Martin Freeman and others who got so much to do, and they were always tuned up. They were always finally tuned up on the floor because they'd been doing it nearly all day. Most of us were sitting in a room about this size, really bored with biscuits and going crazy. Um, and, and occasionally you get that, or we want you and you beckoned. and you back in. You were beckoned. And you had to be on, you sort of had to be there with them on the same kind of level of boredom, mediocrity, ordinariness. You know, and it's very tricky when you've, you cl you're slowly going mad in a room and mixture of being tired and also having all this energy which you normally have as an actor and it's not called upon. Mm. I think Ewan said that initially he didn't have uh, any lines but they, they threw him a line and because it went well they gave him more. Oh, uh, was that the same with you? Or? No, no, no. Um, I, uh, really in the script I didn't have very much uh, but Ewan was, was somebody that they really liked. Um, and they could see that he was just going to be very ordinary and, and, and rather sad, you know, and, and just recognisable, instantly recognisable as a character, and he didn't really have to do very much. And they liked him, they liked that, whereas with me it was a bit more tricky because I, I don't... It's just this whole thing about... Ewan wasn't really an actor then. I mean, I don't think... He's He'd become, done a lot of comedy, but he hadn't done much acting. No, and and... You sort of needed actors, you know. I mean, Martin Freeman is a really artist, actor, yeah. you know. And there were others too. Um, Oliver Chris, for instance, who's done incredibly well since. Yeah. And it's that thing of not acting. And I think they liked Ewan because he didn't act. He just kind of sort of... I've got to be very careful what I say because I, do, I don't mean to say anything rude, but, you know, he was, he was just... He was sort of himself, but, like, like interesting, like, as well. Sort um, of naturalistic. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> naturalistic. So I just want to go back to the, um, the audition, because uh, I'm always fascinated by auditions and how they go, but what kind of... Um, what kind of uh, freestyle stuff were you doing with Ricky in the in the audition? Well, it would it would be like it 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 say right. This is Malcolm. You've got a little brief about him. Just tell us about your day. What 
what, what's the most important person in your life? Who are the most important things? What are, your, what are the most important things in your life? And I think I said something like, I went on about my mother. I went on about my cats. I went on about liking cake. I mean, anything that was just very, very mundane, you know? And I imagined to be very boring. And I think Ricky liked that. Yeah. I think he liked the fact that I, t I was talking forever about cake, which I don't have any problem with at all, but I never thought I'd have to do that in an audition. So it sounds like you got the brief very quickly and you latched onto it very quickly and they must have, they must have realised that. Well, the other thing is, <laughs> is I wasn't really bothered about getting it or not. That's the other thing is if you bother too much, and if you're interested in auditions, if you bother too much in an audition about wanting it, um, well, you're going to mess it up, really. Um, and I wasn't bothered. I didn't know who these people were. I mean, I liked, as I said, I liked Ash, and I liked Stephen, and I thought Ricky was strange and, you know, clearly charismatic in a, in a weird sort of way. But I didn't want it then. I didn't want it. But then they called me back, and then I thought, well, you know, remember initially, George, it's only for a pilot, yeah. you know. And, and, and then they told me how much money we were going to get. And then you could earn decent money, and you got this thing called residuals. And I thought, oh, right, well, I'm going to get that for just kind of, I don't know, looping around as this guy, <laughs> this really boring guy in middle... Where, where did we shoot it? Um, Middlesex, not Middlesex. Um, that way, St. Margaret's, Twickenham, that way, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, and by the time we were doing it, I really did start to get interested in it because I'd never, ever, ever done anything like it. So was it exciting being part of something that was so different? N not at the time, really, no. I mean, in, in a kind of subliminal way, personally, it was, in, it was challenging for me because I'd never, ever done that. But I didn't, I didn't find anything exciting about the material at all. And I wasn't... I, 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 I Why was that? Because it wasn't what I was used to. And to a certain extent, at that time, it wasn't what we were used to, generally, as, as a kind of TV public. I mean, there were other fly-on-the-wall stuff, but this really took it into a new territory. Uh, I think you'd agree with that. And so at the time, and indeed when it first came out, I mean, it, do, it did, when it first came out, you know, have a very lukewarm reception. The first it was series. Only, yeah. yeah, but it was only when the first series was shown for a second time that it really hit something. Uh, but at the time, you know, we never thought it would go beyond a pilot. Well, I didn't. I mean, Ricky and Stephen did, but I, I thought, oh, no, well, that's it, you know. And then, and then we get asked to do two episodes. And the, I think originally the BBC commissioned commissioned them to write two episodes and so they wrote all of it they wrote all of it clever boys they wrote so it was there ready and waiting so what kind of an atmosphere did ricky and steve generate what was it like on the set then um well um it was nerve-wracking because of that thing of they were on it all the time and there was a group of them on it on there all the time so they were tuned they were warmed up they were they were in character, that's a rather sort of grand term, but you know, they were there, they were centred. And so you went out there from this little room where there was just biscuits and loads of tea and people sleeping. And you just went out there and it was like, well, let's go. And then Ricky would get hysterical. 
he would he would couldn't stop laughing. So there would be you'd have a little moment with Ricky and there'd be 22 takes because Ricky couldn't stop laughing. Had you, do, had you done that before? Had you ever done 22 takes before? Yeah, I think there were times. There were other times when he just couldn't do it because he was laughing so much. There was what was kind of what I really got into eventually, which was really harrowing at first, was that how they'd suddenly change stuff. Him and Stephen say, look, we're not going to do it like that anymore. And I remember when we did episode six and I had quite a bit to say in the first series in episode six, the last one, I think it yeah. was. Judgment. Yeah. Is that they changed everything. But I think, I'd love to talk to, to Ricky about it now. I think it was because they wanted to surprise me because I was getting very set very early on. And Stephen gave me a wonderful note. Stephen Merchant was a, a wonderful director. He was much, he, w he really knew how to talk to actors, Stephen. And he said to me, stop making a statement of every line that you say which is a wonderful note for any actor. I mean, like an actor in any, any, any medium. Yeah. But actually with this, it was absolutely crucial. Don't make a statement of every line you're saying. In other words, for goodness sake, push away from it. You know, let it, let it just land. Just say it, just say it. Which scene was that in then? Do you that, was, that was the... Oh, that yeah. One, that one. Because I'd rehearsed it within an inch of its life because I was that kind of actor, because I was used to doing stuff that you had to rehearse and you had to know. And for goodness sake, you couldn't do, do again. You couldn't do 22 times. You could only do it once because it was live, you know. And so I'd get really rehearsed and then over-rehearsed and it, it, would, it would seem stiff, you know. It would seem too stiff. So that was the challenge. But what wasn't... What was there also was terrible boredom this and fear of, you know, I mean, I remember the first time that all of us came in to do a, a, an open office scene when we were all at desks and all that kind of stuff. Um, and Ricky had been doing loads of stuff, some monologues, bits in the office, great funny stuff, changing things. And he came out and we were all sitting there. He says, what's the matter with you? You all look, you all look terrified. And of course we were terrified. Because we're all like rabbits in the headlights. Because we'd been in a room all morning, waiting to do our half line, or waiting to do our look, you know. And no wonder we were terrified. And then he suddenly, and then he suddenly wanted us to go back to stuff that we did in the audition. He started, he started to talk to me about this stuff, and I thought, what's he talking about? And I thought, I remember this about, is, about the, the cake, yeah, and yeah, like, dogs. or something like your mother. He suddenly started to talk about my mother, and I thought. Oh, yeah, I see. He's gone back to that. Well, I mean, I hadn't thought about that for weeks. Because I think Ewan said that in the first series, there was a lot of, a lot of um, well, there was more room for making stuff up in the moment. But in the second series, which well, obviously you got made redundant, very sadly. But there, I I've think it was very much... <laughs> yeah, well, tell us about it. Well, no, I think, this is, I think this is interesting what Ewan is saying, is because that is what was, although scary... That was what was challenging about it, was because it, you had more freedom in a way. There was, okay, let's do it like this, or like do it like that. And then you sort of got used to it. And then after six, six weeks or something, I think that was it, six episodes a week, uh, uh, a week taken with each episode, or something like that, is that you really got into it. It was a bit like a, a, bit like a drug, you know? Because um, it was very tight rope. And you started to enjoy it. And I'd, 
I got a lot of work and was seen for a lot of stuff as a result of being able to do that, which is just to make something up, you know. Um, and, and Fly on the Wall became more and more fashionable and more and more people were doing it. Yeah, the, what was the story? The um, I was saying that you, were, you unfortunately, were made redundant. Well, no, I was booked. I was booked to do the second series. And really? then, uh, yeah, um, and then I got an offer of a really nice theatre job. And I didn't think about money those days. Um, and I thought, I want to do the theatre job, but let's see how much they got for me to do in the second series. And Anil Gupta, I think, was the other producer who my agent really spoke to. And I, I think I might have even spoken to him myself. He said, look, you'll have less to do. And I thought, less to do than I did in the first one. I really am going to go out of my mind. And I wasn't thinking about the salary, and I wasn't thinking about the residuals. I was thinking about the fact that I'd been offered this play, a very, very funny play, a wonderful part, um, and I, I went with that. And they were fine about it because, you know, uh, easily replaceable. And the second series was different, as as Ewan has indicated. There wasn't, there were there were more people. Remember, there was another lot, weren't there? There was another lot kind of floating around. And um, the chances of you having more to say and more to do, less and less and less. I yeah. suppose your role of actually, because in the first series, you, Malcolm was the only who actually challenged him, really. Yeah, it made sense that, that yeah. he wouldn't come back. It yeah. made sense. It tied, it tied a very, very incidental character up very well, in, almost by accident, because cause that's really clearly where he was going, because there was that scene when Ricky just turned to me I think I just looked at me and thought you're out so but, that, but it then that I kind of fits booked. doesn't it it did fit but I was booked yeah you know I was booked do, do you wish you'd done the second no I, I wish I did financially <laughs> because those were the days when it, no matter how small your role was if you were a named character you would get residuals and plus there's Christmas specials maybe that would and there would have been the Christmas special and the theatre job was really really tough Really? Really tough. And, and my father died. That was the other thing. Oh, that's sad. So it was really tough. Um, but, you know, you've got to let go of stuff like that, really. And there were other nice things ha happening and did happen as mm. a result of it. So I can't grumble. So, so it sounds like it was quite frenetic on set. Is that right? W w were there kind of was there larks and pranks, or was it actually just there were charged? A few. It, there were a few larks and pranks, but really, once we got, you know, we'd start I think on the Monday, and by the time we got to Wednesday afternoon, we thought we've only got until Friday. I think it was. We rarely worked on Saturday, or they might have done a bits and pieces on Saturday. We thought we've really got to get through this because this is all we've got, and that helped it. That helped it people you know there was there was a kind of group feeling by the end of it you know um, and I would have loved to have worked with Martin Freeman again because we were quite chatty you know he liked music he liked the 60s we talked about 60s music a lot we talked I uh, Mackenzie was just got on with it was very focused all the time 
um, and Ewan, and there was a, a lovely chap who was also a mate of Ewan's, and I've forgotten his name, and it's really unfortunate because I got to be very, very fond of him too, and I used to talk to him, but I've forgotten his name. And uh, Mousy Girl is now an agent, a very successful agent, um, and I had one or two exchanges with her last year. I didn't know that she'd become an agent. Um, so who, who's that, sorry? I think her name was Jane, but I can't remember her second name, Mousy Girl. She was credited as Mousy Girl. Don't you think that's a pretty <laughs> name for Mousy Girl. Yeah, Mousy Girl. Look her up. <laughs> Mousy Girl. Right. And she, and she was a brilliant Mousy Girl. And she's brilliant. now an agent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. But no, uh, no regrets, really, because doors did open and people did... I mean, I wasn't really doing much television before and then, you know, from then on, I did start to get a lot of telly. So when it when it's on and, and, and you see it... I, I never see it. You, you've never seen it? I've seen it once. You've seen it once? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, once. But were you happy with with, with the performance? Cause it, with I, mine? I, from what you've said, you were going for a naturalistic deadpan and that's exactly what, what it was. Well, I was happy enough, but I did still wish that I'd got more to do. I did still wish I couldn't... I don't think I could have gone into a second series and been happy with as little, with less than that. Because it must be weird having the stars rolling around, having a great time, and then you've got the smaller people, like you say, sitting in a room eating biscuits. Yeah. That divide must be quite strange. It's like the class system. It's like the real. It's a real class, kind of almost like a. Cl it's, it's it's, and it's a bit like that in very big theatre companies, you know. But um, yeah, it, 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 but and but the thing is about the others. That, I mean, it is a terrific responsibility that the, 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 the leads had to sustain it, you know, because there was about five or six of them. And it is, it is tough if you're week four or five and you've been doing it for that length of time and you've got two more weeks to do and there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, pressure. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, there's more opportunity to lock around and have fun and all that, but it's still a different, it's a big job. So when you are a, a character like that, whose job is it to look after you and make sure you're not being neglected? Is it producer or is it the star? Oh, Ash was wonderful about coming up, you know, in the wheelchair and saying, are you all right? Are you okay? <laughs> oh, Robin, how you doing? Oh, are you bored? Uh, you know, and he'd talk. He'd talk. Ash was quieter. Uh, Ricky was always busy uh, talking about other stuff and, and all that. But you think he might have picked up on something because he created extras? Do you think he might have picked up on it on, on the yeah, set? Yeah, I do. I, do. I, mean, that's a, I, I mean, that's my personal thing. I mean, he goes on to make extras, and there were loads of extras in the office. And he must have, he must have watched us and had a sense of the, the comparative boredom of it and, and this, you know, and the gossiping and sort of... Um, I don't think there was much... How can I say sucking up to the stars because th there weren't any stars in it then, yeah. you know. So I'm just wondering what the chemistry was like, um, what made it so good. I'm thinking about the chemistry between Steve and Merchant and Ricky Gervais here. Mates, old mates, you see. Do you think that's part of that? Of why yeah, it was making so each successful? other laugh. Yeah, making each other laugh, working well together. Two blokes could be two, whatever. But you know, if they've established a friendship. And they're on the same wavelength, the same page. That's a big. I mean, look at the successful BBC. Uh, look at the successful comedy series that have had a writing partnership. The, the two guys that wrote Dad's Army, you know, for instance. 
I mean, worked together for decades. And it helps. Um, yeah, and, and I think that, that Stephen especially, um, really approachable. You know, you could talk to Stephen in the lift. Um, sometimes with Ricky, he was so into his world of this, that and the other that you couldn't really talk to him and he certainly didn't want to talk to you. Not because he was being particularly grand then, but because he got so much to think about because he was playing the main guy and he'd written it and he was directing it. So he had a lot going on. Um, did he stay in character, do you think? Or do you think he just stayed with that energy? In many fundamental respects, George, there's not much difference between Ricky and Brent. Even though he says, I'm not like that at all. I mean, you've got to be like that to, to, to be able to do that so with such truth. So it's authentic. come from a place of truth. Oh, yeah. 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 A bit like Alan Partridge and Steve Coogan. Cause yeah. I think he, well, that's he's a pedant about certain things, you know, yeah, like yeah. Alan Partridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot part of it is based on, on Steve Coogan's dad, who, who is a very, he's a very um, punctilious guy. And, uh, you know, he, I think a lot of that is kind of sourced from, like you say, the truth of him and his family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the... the, the yeah, I mean, Rick is infinitely more charismatic than David Brent in one sense. But in another way, they, they sh they do, there are strong similarities between the two of them. And that intensity that Mackenzie, Mackenzie had, is, he's very intense. And that intensity is there in his character. And that really slightly well-meaning, lovable, cuddly character that Martin played. Martin <laughs> did have that. I haven't seen Martin anywhere for years and years and years. And maybe he's t very, very different now. But then he was so like the character, you know? And Mousy Girl, too. Mousy Girl was the same. <laughs> um, she was a little bit like that. Um, quiet, works hard, you know. Um, but Martin Freeman, in, as Bilbo Baggins, he's... He has that kind of boy next door, your mate, friendly, down to earth type vibe, which I guess uh, Tim Canterbury had as well, didn't he? Yeah, and Martin was certainly like that. I mean, I don't know what he's like now, but he certainly was like that then. I mean, he was very popular, very chatty, but not boringly so. Did you get a sense at the time that he was had a big future ahead of him, Martin Freeman? Yeah, uh, but I've got strange taste. You know, and, and some people were surprised. And certainly, I think before The Office, Martin was having a, quite a tricky time. And he didn't have such a great time at drama school, I don't think. Because he wasn't the kind of classic no. leading male, I mean, was he? I mean, you know, um, but of course, you never know. You never know. And he's got a certain charisma, hasn't he? Well, of course, because cause, cause he's centred. Once the camera gets onto him, He's sort of centred. He's not... He's very good at... You believe him. You believe him and he doesn't have to work hard at it. Do you think that's something you can learn or you think that's just some people, something people have? I think there is definitely some people who haven't got it that find themselves in front of a screen, a small screen, rarely a, a big screen. And you look at them and you think, I don't believe that. 
I, I, I don't think many people get that far now when you look at the screen and you think, no, that person is not being truthful, it's not believable because there's so many people out there now. But there was a time when you'd, you'd just catch these performances and you think, no, you might be fabulous on stage, you might be amazing, you can hear you at the back of the, back of the stalls, you, you've got a very, what we call a stage face, you've got huge physical presence, but when a camera falls on you, you, you see everything kind of worked out in fantastic detail. There's nowhere to hide, is there? There's, there's, the camera... Well, there's that famous expression, isn't it? The camera loves you. The camera just loves you, and, and the camera will love you more if you're not hiding anything. Did you have a favourite scene that, that you were in? I didn't enjoy the, the, the confrontation in the last episode. I think largely because Stephen and, and, and Ricky changed it so much, and they probably changed it for the better, but they didn't give me a fair warning. In the corridor when you said, did you yeah, fake yeah, medical, yeah, 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 medical yeah. science? That was so different to the script. Cheap medical science. And, and they, they put it on me about an hour before I did it, and I think it was because they just wanted me to be just not thinking about it so much. You know, I'm, I'm sure that's why they did it. And I mean, it was, I was pretty shell-shocked because, you know, I, I, I did too much preparation. And I, I did a lot of preparation to a certain extent because I didn't want to let the side down. But I did enjoy, I did enjoy the scene when we were all waiting outside the door. I liked that because I was with others and, you know, and it, it was very, very funny. It was very funny. And that was a kind of confrontation. Well, that was really difficult to do. Really difficult to do. Because you had to engage the camera and you also had um, his secretary and David Brent and you had to kind of glance at the camera. It was quite a few things to, to do there, wasn't it? And the girl who was brilliant, I think she only did a couple of days and it would maybe have been her first day. And this is the thing that you, d you, you rarely think about or indeed perhaps you pick up but you rarely think about is that these kids who come in these people who come in and it's for two days and they've got such a terrific responsibility and they've not been there from the first week. You know, it's That's massive, isn't it? It is massive. It is. Imagine it's thinking, this is my, yeah, this could be huge. This is my moment. I've got three scenes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you come in and you're loaded. You're yeah. loaded. And you, you, you don't have to be. You don't have to be. Um, so, but, but do you think, how much do you think... Um, how special do you think The Office was in terms of changing the genre? Because you, you obviously you're in TV a huge amount. Did you see it change after The Office? Yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, look at the th look at look at the things that started to happen, and um, unfortunately, I was involved with one of them, which was 2012. I mean, that really roots back to The Office and that kind of intensity and detail and fly on the wall and believability all those things and bringing in odd characters but that that is that definitely takes it has a huge heritage back to the office doesn't it fly uh, on the wall yeah look at all those notes George. this is good isn't it <laughs> <laughs> so what happened so how did the office change your life then if at all it changed it didn't change my life it certainly, people started to take me a little bit more seriously, not necessarily as a theatre actor. Although one of the reasons why I got the theatre job, which conflicted with um, the second series of The Office, was they started to hear about The Office, and The Office was suddenly becoming the thing that everybody was talking about. So they wanted 
people who were in a hit show to do a, a theatre job. Well, it didn't work out like that <laughs> because it was such a, it was so rarefied in a sense that, you know, the people who would come and see the stage play would not necessarily be interested in anything like the office. So it didn't really work. But, but no, it, 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 people, I was starting to get known as somebody who could do comedy on telly. So you got a lot more telly work. I think I saw you did The Monarch of the Glen or something in 2003. What, you must have, was that an example of the more kind of te- telly work that you got yeah, off Yeah, absolutely. I would never, ever have got that part without having done The Office. So um, what advice would you give to, to young actors then? Just do everything. Just carry on, do everything. Do as much as you can. Don't sit on your ass. Don't wait for people to phone you up. Don't wait to be asked. Just get out there and do it. Make it, write it, direct it, act in it, design it. Do it. Don't wait. Don't wait around. Don't sit around. Don't expect to earn bags of money ever. Don't expect the money to be there forever. The money comes and goes. Um... Just if you want to do it, you've got to carry on doing it. And it's okay. I was talking to a brilliant young actor today who's been doing it for 10 years and he's not going to do it anymore. And I said, look, I don't think he was particularly worried about it, but just in case he was worried about it, I said, it will always welcome you back. It never ditches you, this business. It never abandons you. You abandon it. And if you want to go back into it, then you can go back into it, but it, it might not necessarily be on your own terms. Carry on, carry on, carry on. So not you, George, <laughs> the, the young actor. The young yeah. actor. So, just to think, as we come to an end here, thinking about The Office, how do you think about it in general terms after the, all the time has passed? What do you think about it as, as a part of your life and a, as a project? Very important piece of television comedy. Probably one of the most important. Um, real inspiration. Two guys making a script. Nobody wanted to do it at first. You know... Two, a commission to write two episodes. As I said, they went away and wrote six. They got it ready. They did a second series and then they said, that's it, and a Christmas special. We're not doing any more. Brilliant. Kind of self-control and self-discipline. Let's make something else. And that kind of um, resilience to um, conveyor belt product, I think, is hugely admirable. And, and, and kind of um, redefining what a sort of truth is on the screen. You can always be even more truthful, you know. And it's interesting that this kind of ca- this um, success and revelation came at a time when there was so much fly-on-the-wall documentary, real documentary. And the idea was that you couldn't tell the difference. Now we've got wise to it. And we sort of can, most of the time, tell the difference. But there's got to come a point where we cannot, we cannot tell the difference between something, it's somebody real and somebody acting. That's got to be the perfect acting performance, hasn't it? 
art. Wow. Wow, George. This is I've just, I just, This is quite profound for Starbucks <laughs> Friday afternoon before the weekend. Art. Um, and, and finally, you may not remember this line, but I want to see if you remember it. Okay. It is a question of trust. Do you trust me? Did I say that? No, that's, that was David Brent's line. Your line is, yes, I trust you. Oh, right, okay. Should we try again? Do you, do you want me to say that? If that's okay. Oh, no, that's fine. Go on. It is a question of trust. Do you trust me? Yes, I trust you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. As always, please give us a rating and subscribe to hear more episodes. Let us know your thoughts and who you'd like to hear from next. On Twitter at whatanofficepod and on email at wapod at outlook.com. See you again next time.